Welcome to Fintech Daydreaming, the podcast that dives into the world of banking technologies and the ever-changing landscape of fintech companies. We bring you real-life examples from global and local thought leaders, as well as experts working within the financial industry, and seek out the best stories from the front lines of financial services innovation, where dreams of industry pioneers meet reality. Hosted by Paul Krogdahl and Ville Sontu, this is Fintech Daydreaming. Hello and welcome back to Fintech Daydreaming. And in case you're joining us for the first time, we're delighted that you decided to give us a try. Uh, we'll do our best definitely to keep you around uh, for a bit longer, at least a few couple of episodes. My name is Ville Sointo and I know what you're thinking. Uh, didn't this guy just host the, uh, the last episode as well? Well, I did indeed. And uh, I think this is the first time in the short history of our podcast that I'm actually hosting uh, two times in a row. And uh, it's, it's a little bit shocking, I know, but let's try to get over it. Uh, sometimes real work gets in the way of preparing for this little hobby of ours, uh, but luckily we are two people, so we can be flexible uh, when needed. So this is an example of that. Busy times or not, as always, delighted, uh, I'm delighted that I have my co-host Paul Krugdahl with us here in the virtual studio. Hey Paul, a lot's happening at work for us, all of us at FinTech Space right now, uh, but I'm really happy we still find time to do these chats uh, every other week. Um, how's it going otherwise? Hey Villa, no, absolutely, you're right. And I'm so pleased that uh, you were willing and, and able to host another episode directly after the last one you did, but things are manic for me at the moment. So much going on, it's so exciting and so many interesting developments happening. You know, lots of work. Um, it's, a, it's a good situation to be in, I suppose, right? And actually, just to, uh, to highlight, you're slightly wrong. This is the second time that you are hosting two episodes in a row on am, the, okay. the full sort of history of fintech daydreaming. But it's nice that we can be flexible and ping backs and forwards and help each other out sometimes, right? That's what makes this all so good. Yeah. But with that in mind, uh, we also have a joke. Do you want to hear it? Yes, please. The okay. highlight of the episode, right? <laughs> yeah, we, we can't do an episode without the joke. So, and this one is a, is a nice one that came in from, uh, from one of our listeners. So, why do goalkeepers have so much money in the bank? Mm. We had a former professional soccer player in the uh, episode last, last time, right? didn't we? So, I guess I should know the answer to this, but uh, I, I don't. So, please tell me. They do a lot of saving. Ooh. That's, that's pretty bad, but in a good way, just the way we like it, right? Maybe it depends upon the goalkeeper, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've, I've read some stories about goalkeepers that don't really do a lot of saving. <laughs> Absolutely not, but that one came in from uh, James Hurst in uh, Denmark. So thank you, Perfect. James. Thanks, Jim, I guess, if I have the liberty to call you Jim. So thanks for that. Uh, again, uh, another classic moment of uh, fintech daydreaming jokes. Uh, please keep them coming in. Uh, and uh, hopefully uh, we'll get uh, even wor be worse, better jokes uh, in the future. We love all of them. Uh, okay, good. But hey, let's get on with the show uh, and let's keep the weather segment for this time uh, because the weather is uh, changing all the time, uh, at least here in Finland. We don't really know when the spring is coming or is it coming or not. But uh, on with the show and, to, and on with the guest uh, for this episode. Today we're going to talk about data. 
it's the core building block of all things digital, including financial services. Uh, while we talk a lot about data quite often in this podcast, uh, today we're going to take a bit of a new and yes, a bit technical angle uh, to this topic. And that is data in transactional context and how to modernize operations based on data-driven decision-making. And that's a lot of jargon, but basically it's, uh, we're trying to kind of build uh, an interesting view to see data not just being some kind of a static blob of, of data that you kind of mine and create decisions on, but actually real-time transactional data when you need to make quick decisions uh, on, on the, what is happening around you in the digital world and how to do that uh, in, a, in a, a good way. And indeed, we all quite, quite often uh, hear these slightly tired metaphors of data being uh, the new gold. Uh, personally, I actually think it's more of the new plutonium, uh, which is powerful when used correctly, but catastrophically dangerous, if not really taken care of in a good way. Uh, and then using this data for advanced analytics and quote-unquote artificial intelligence to create operational efficiency and new types of services. All of these things are based on the foundation of data that needs to be accessible, structured, secure, uh, and ready readily available. None of these, however, are easy to achieve uh, in a banking environment in particular. Luckily, uh, our guest today uh, is someone who is smack in the middle of enterprise modernization and data-driven digital transformation. Boris Bielek, I hope I pronounced your last name right, uh, is the uh, global head of enterprise modernization at MongoDB, where he focuses on modernization of banking solutions uh, specifically. His work focus uh, is digital transformation and true innovation, implementing exciting solutions, whether that is new mobile payment platforms for a US banking group or risk and treasury platform for a GSIB, and that's jargon for uh, globally systemic, uh, systemically imported bank, by the way, uh, for, for those of you not in the, uh, in the kind of banking lingo. And uh, for these GC banks, uh, the projects that he has been working on allow real-time data reconciliation, among many other things. Before joining MongoDB, uh, he worked for many years uh, with FIS, IBM, Dell, and Compaq Computers. He also has a master's degree from the Karlsruhe Institute of Technology, but most importantly, he is our guest today in fintech daydreaming, surely an important entry in your resume, Boris. So welcome to the show. Uh, how are you doing today? Hey, good morning, and I'm absolutely fine sitting on a mountain in Switzerland. I'm covetizing in more cows and people, which helps on the social distancing, as long as you don't mind the smell. <laughs> Perfect. Uh, I mean, Swiss mountains don't sound too bad, uh, at least not right now, uh, when the weather here in Finland is a little bit uh, dodgy. I hear it's going to be sleet and uh, close to zero temperatures. Uh, to, uh, oh, I have minus four right now, Celsius. Okay. Not Kelvin, so yeah, that's that's nice and crisp, at least. Yeah. And uh, again, really happy to have, have you with us today, Boris. Uh, uh, before we dive deeper into all things data and all the nerdy stuff, uh, could you tell our listeners a little bit more about your background, perhaps? Uh, how did you land in this wonderful world of uh, fintech or financial technology? Oh, it, it actually started out in my school days. I learned out databases, the old school. SQL is the future of lifetime in the 80s. I'm dating myself. No hair is left. You can figure out why. <laughs> And then over several other stops, I got into solutioning and, and, and ended up sooner or later at IBM with Linux and DB2 at a time when Linux was like, you went to a bank, says Linux, and they were laughing their, their booties off. And they were the mainframe guys looking to the left side and you, who are you? What are you doing here? You understand this is a bank, right? <laughs> and 
So we started out on that one and started the first projects. At that time, Morgan Stanley built the first cluster ever on Linux, which was a huge story in New York. And those kinds of happening out. And then I got into the banking space more and more over my Linux stuff, then left IBM, uh, had a small interludum at a core banking vendor who I tried to convince that PLSQL and Oracle is maybe not the future. And they told me, you don't understand. It will be there forever. And then I know this place is not mine. Luckily, FIS gave me a great opportunity to modernize a large number of application risk and treasury. And there I started looking to what comes after SQL. And honestly, SQL is not the problem. I think everybody loves SQL. The problem what we run into was, what are we doing with data smarter? And that's when I started to get really questioning 25 years of my career, which is a funny moment. You need a lot of beer to do that. Just be warned. And then we started migrating apps into MongoDB. And I met some of the Mongo employees after submitting some bug, bug reports. And I tried to figure out how do I get bug reports to these guys for real, which ended up talking to some interesting folks. And they had no idea what I was doing. It was really funny. But uh, after that time, then sooner they realized if they hire me, a lot of the pain will go away. And I was my leash was sent over from FIS to MongoDB. And I'm doing this since then. What we are seeing is my job right now, you mentioned we're working with some very large banks. They're very shy on mentioning innovative stuff. On one side, they're really happy to mention about digital transformation. And we say, oh, by the way, we're changing your security context and your global card management. <gasps> Don't tell anybody. So that's pretty much when you deal with banking data. And this is what I'm doing these days. Yeah, I, I think there are interesting points you made there. I mean, SQL is kind of, a, I mean, it's, obviously everywhere uh, in, the, in the service, in the banking segment specifically, because it is by definition, it's, it's really structured. It's very definitive. It's, it's not kind of probabilistic in the way you do the queries. You get actual uh, structured answers. You're able to have rollback procedures in place uh, in, a, in a kind of a well predictable way, which of course is good for anybody who works in, uh, works in banking. But ju just briefly, I mean, you mentioned that uh, SQL is perhaps not the future. C could you kind of uh, elaborate a little bit more? Yeah. What do you think uh, then is the future? This, this interesting part is SQL is one important piece. Mm -hmm. And as you point out, the structured query language is one thing, but people mixing up the purpose of an SQL and the structured query language with a table structure. And this is something what was so natural for me. I said, I see a payment, I see a Swift. What do you see? 15,000 tables. Immediately, you break the MT5 or three apart. Mm -hmm. You see the structures in your mind. And this is so natural because we were born with it in our school education. And when you think about it, what is a payment? And this is a little bit about the subject today, real-time transactions. What is a payment? A payment historically was a piece of paper called an IOU. If you actually look, this is funny enough, even the Zoomers had those ones already, 3,000 before. So why do we need to break this up into structures? Because historically, data space was expensive and there was no compression. So that's a whole story if you roll it backward. There is no technical reason why you can't structure it. And we tried, when you think about it, we tried to get off it since, as a, and one thing of claim of fame, which derides a lot of people is, Relational databases did not change since Oracle 6. Materialized views, joins, unions, all the stuff is there. Afterwards, what did we try? You guys remember cache, object-oriented data stores, and trying to connect that? The idea was good. The execution was dodgy. It was way too early for its time. And then XML, by God. We guys all live it every day, right? Fixml, FPML, whatever ML. 
And the concept was great to structure documents and structure finally instruments in a standardized fashion. The problem was, this is happens if you let researcher define a practical standard. Unusable, but great. So what came, people came up with JSON some way. The whole change came out about the structures. That's as well where MongoDB started, a lot of other folks started. But when these guys started, they forgot the most important part, what you mentioned. What about traceability? What about all the other requirements, auditability, lock, rollbacks, asset compliance? And when you see all these dudes right now, oh yeah, we are working completely eventually compliant, uh, eventually uh, consistent. And this is, this is interesting. So your credit card transaction reference system is eventually consistent. <laughs> and, and the guy says, absolutely, that's totally good enough. I'm not mentioning the company, but it, and, and I looked at the guy longer and longer. He says, let's talk in three months after your first client deployment. It was eight weeks after they deployed. And they told us before, you guys are really too complex as Mongo. All this asset compliance is so yesterday. Uh, well, yeah, there were some issues with the vendor X, Y, Z, and it didn't. We want to have the best out of all worlds today. And I think we're at the point where we can get it. We need the transactions, the assets, and the SQL, and what we call MQL. So bear with me, Mongo query language, which means JSON descriptors. Mm. JSON is the standard for the developers. Developers actually like JSON. DBAs uh, love SQL. Business analysts love SQL. Why? Because they're used to it. And we recognize this one. So one claim to fame is MongoDBS as well, an SQL connector. And that works out really, really well. But the key part is the structure of data of transactions is changing. And the second part is the content is changing, right? When, when we think about what happens as a SWIFT payment 15 years ago, what was it? Payer, pay, bank connection amount. Today, without KYC information, you don't get one single dollar transfer over SWIFT network. Yeah. So how do you deal with that? And you will see there's a lot of funny stuff out there. So sorry if I'm, I'm drifting out too fast, too far here, but yeah, no, no, I think this subject uh... is very, very close to my heart. Oh, clearly it is, and uh, to us as well. Uh, the uh, going a little bit deeper into the tech technical stuff, of course, is quite interesting for many of our listeners. And by the way, if there's anybody listening from from the times uh, when I was working uh, for an unspecified vendor on a mobile money system, reporting structures using JSON uh, some years ago, hi, uh, it was a lot of fun. Not not really, but again, uh, this is really <laughs> reminiscent of the uh, of the the things you just said. So, sorry to challenge you. What was the problem that at that time? I'm, let me guess, it was not flexible enough, dodgy interfaces, difficult to program, not scaling. So the, the people who wanted to write the reports, basically, they just wanted, well, they wanted either CSV files or they wanted an SQL database where they could query uh, the reporting structures in an easy way. Uh, we were producing JSONs, uh, which kind of had a little bit of a business logic still left in them when we kind of produced this, uh, these log files which was, to, in, in our minds, it was strength, but of course required a lot from the analytics company that was inter interpreting them. But okay, we, we digress a little bit. And I, oh. I want to take us a, a little bit step back here and look at the kind of things you, you, you touched on a little bit, which is the kind of evolutionary aspects uh, of payments. So taking a little bit of a, a easier uh, to kind of grasp narrative here. So 
the evolution of payments. I mean, payments has always been data, right? In just one, one form or another, whether that is uh, on paper checks or uh, whether that is on, on physical cash, or it's always data. It's just about the medium of, of, uh, of how it's exchanged. Now, you've been obviously part of many of these kind of transformation projects in different kinds of financial institutions. Could you perhaps give your perspective into the evolution of, of data transfer uh, in the payment context? Yeah, I mean, the, the amazing part is that when we look back from SWIFT, 60 bucks a transaction, we all remember those. Some of us change countries and then you want to give some money back to the family and they say, yeah, it's a $60 fee. And by the way, the exchange rate is fixed by us as well and we screw you over by another 5%. We, we all remember those days. And when you take a look today, I'm dealing with a very large European bank, uh, France-based, 0.5 euro cents cost per transaction. So at that point, the cost of the transaction becomes actually not interesting. And they tell me it doesn't matter if it's 50 or 60 million in cost for the whole system for the whole runtime, but it's about the stickiness and the values they can add on top for the clients because the transaction itself becomes uh, a base service, a technology-driven execution. There's not a person at the end. Remember, we all remember wire rooms, right? Where physically people entered and the wire came in, telex, message, list. It may be sound for some people scary, but this was a reality until some years ago. And some years does not mean the 80s. That means 2010. Mm. And when we take a look today, transactions becoming commodity, but the value of a transaction, interesting enough, is going up for the banks. It's more about how can I enrich a transaction, a transfer of a position with additional knowledge to either enhance the value for the payer or the payee or both and for the bank. So one, one cool example, what we're doing is with a lender, a specific lender who's going for the less fortunate people and they're looking into the stream. So they need to have three years, their bank accounts running over that specific company. And out of that one, they built a profile. How is that person living? And they have every single pretty much money flow in out. And based out of that one, they built a specific credit profile, not the usual scoring used by an Equifax, TransUnion, Shufa, whatever, but specific for this individual's behavior. And that allows them to be, in that specific case, several points better in their offering to these people to help them to get to property and getting out of the dodgy and to connect with them when they see they're sliding in certain parts. That for example, suddenly comes a car payment which shows monthly up, which is superseding their spend profile. So, and they share those data with the individuals and tell them they even budgeting tools. All this connected around the standard concept of payments. That's one of the exciting cases what I'm working on and implementing this one. And, and the dude told me, well, by using your, your stuff, Mongo, um, we're saving half a percent of failure. And they said, well, half, half a percent on defaults. What is half a percent? <laughs> we're talking billions here of default. So at that point, it becomes very fast, unfunny to discuss how much impact has the flow. And now comes the interesting part on the transaction again. They're doing this in real time. They're doing this not the end of day processing what we all love so much, our eight hour window until the next morning. There's, no. While a transaction comes in, they're classifying, categorizing, scoring, and adding to the profile of the individual in real time. And the whole thing is executed with one single small tiny microservice. And there's a little bit 
ML behind, as you can imagine, the transaction gets scored. Where does he spend it? How does he spend it? 150 elements get added to a transaction. Yeah. Yeah, it's, uh, that's actually an interesting, interesting angle to be kind of moving into more speedier transactions because a lot of the kind of slowness in the financial system is, is not really limited by the technology and has hasn't been for a long time. It's just about these latencies have been built in in order to reduce risk. Now, uh, now we're just now coming into the age where we can actually reduce perhaps that risk using smarter technologies and faster decision-making. Uh, and that's why uh, we're moving into real-time payments uh, as yeah. well. This is sometimes a little bit difficult for especially people working in the crypto space to understand that these are uh, systemic by design things rather than technical problems. But yeah, shifting the gears a little bit, I mean, like you, like we kind of now covered quite well is that payments and transaction and data handling in the financial system is a, is a multi-party uh, kind of a setup. And yet at the same time, banks are working in an environment where privacy, uh, data privacy, especially the customer data privacy and the bank secret is, is very critical into the way the system operates. Now, Lately, we've been uh, being introduced to several kind of different privacy preserving technologies for this kind of cross institutional data sharing. Um, and um, what do you think, Boris, what should banks uh, be thinking about this topic uh, in terms of privacy preserving technologies uh, in this uh, kind of data space? So the biggest one, what I try to tell people always is don't mix encryption with privacy. Encryption is one part. And encryption helps you that if you're breached the data may be safe or may not be safe, depending how well or bad you encrypt. But privacy is not about the encryption part, which is for me table stakes, but as a service level, what a good provider delivers to their clients. So what we're doing with MongoDB is something called field level encryption. That, that goes way far. So historically, what you do is you encrypt a whole set of data and a whole standard. We are going down to have a single key on a single element in a single document, AKA transaction. So why would you go that far? A client could control different keys. Think about a family office in a private, uh, private banking wealth management environment can decide which bank, which counterparty can see which part of the transaction on which detail level. And this is actually, again, about the enrichment of the transaction. So this, there's something, there's a scene here, right? But it comes to the point that you give the control back to the consuming side, which can be corporate, can be private, or even an end consumer, the right to be forgotten is such a simple term. Whoever has seen a bank, when this comes up, they say, yeah, yeah, we have our process in place. They said, so how many data copies do you have? I think we have 18. And how many backups today? Well, we, we are backupping daily, yes. So how many copies of the data have you actually physically in flow? And that, at that point, they get like, are you guys a friend of us or an enemy? Are you working for a regulator? Yes. So they get very defensive. Yeah. And they try to make it sound funny. It's not. And then we're telling them, oh, by the way, and we can show you how with one single key, you can literally pull it. You have the gibberish in your system, but it can never be decrypted. And those, this is a level which obviously implies as well application, API, know-how. It's where data, the process, a payment, a position, a bank account, a contract, hits information of the individual parties involved. And with these field level encryption mechanisms, you're able to do that. Now, behind the field level encryption we're using, obviously now comes, we are not the KMS. You can use your HashiCorp, whatever. So brand name, brand name, brand name. And the other part is, which is quite interesting. As soon as you introduce something like that, the discussion cloud 
provider, public cloud, private cloud, any cloud, no cloud becomes unclouded mm. because it doesn't matter where you store the data. They are fully private, not encrypted. And the systems are encrypted, the disks are encrypted, leave all that one out. But they're private to a part that only the consuming parties can analyze and see certain parts of the data. And to be honest, banking is quite easy in that space. We're doing the same in healthcare. And those guys are even more nervous about those kind of information. As you can imagine, even does every doctor need to know and every person in the center doing the physical accounting, does they need to know what happens on the other side? These things of discussion. Yeah. level encryption is the way to go, in my opinion. I like the concept because it's very granular. The granularity discussion is over. It's a single field and a single object. Now, do you always go that route that every single, will, will you encrypt every single transaction? Probably. If you're a big corporate and you're doing payments to suppliers, you want certain information encrypted piece by piece. And you take the extra step, which costs you maybe one euro cent. But it's worth it if you have certain relationships. Does the end user, you and me, when we have our checking account, do we want every single transaction, every electricity payment encrypted by an old? No. But we would like to have a key given by the bank where we can say, this is our key. And we encrypt certain parts. And honestly, you don't have the need to know. Yeah. I mean, we often talk about kind of fancy concepts like self-sovereign identity and self-sovereign data control, for example, but none of that makes any difference unless we have control uh, on enough kind of detailed level and we have proper access into the into the data elements and working in an environment where still a lot of the business is done on excel spreadsheets uh, that is a bit of a tall yep. order but uh, but yeah i think uh, it's definitely moving forward and looking forward to seeing how we can actually transform a lot of this stuff and uh, that's talking of transformation sorry yeah. to interrupt you the part is you need to realize the application need to understand certain encrypted data. The database need to structure indexing of encrypted data. There's a lot of things in that one. Why people haven't done it so far before. In, in tables, it doesn't work at all. Yeah. You can't do it in a table structure because the concept of data, which are completely distributed all over the place, don't allow you to do that. Yeah. Sorry. Perfect. So uh, again, talking a lot about these topics, uh, I mean, Paul, I noticed you both, you and Boris have an IBM background. I guess a lot of these uh, themes uh, sound uh, a bit familiar to you. They do indeed, yes. And, and it's actually quite a privilege or a pleasure to have uh, some IBMers join us or ex-IBMers join us on the show. I think we've had two or three in the past and the last one was Richard Brown. But Boris, I don't think we ever had the privilege or pleasure to, to interact or work with each other during the time that you were, were at IBM. But um, nice to talk to you now, but I, I'd, I'd actually like to, to step really back in this whole discussion around data um, and get quite basic again, if I can, just for one minute. Uh, you know, not focusing on all the banks, uh, but it's never been an issue really, has it, for, for banks about data. They've always had this uh, fantastic ability to collect data and store it and, and grow their the amount of data that they've got. Uh, it's more of an issue of data management and governance uh, of this data as I've seen it. And, and it's expanded over time. Um, like I said, I don't really want to, uh, to criticize the banks, but what do you think has been the reason for this lack of focus on the data governance and the control of the data over the years, leaning to you know, most of the situations that the banks are in today? 
Oh, it's very simple. It's called compliance. So first thing is they try to be compliant to processes, their regulators, their needs, the outside, and all these processes lead to a lot of requirements on the upper layer on towards the outbound usage of data. And alone, if there's two things which are really funny, there's the acronym IRRBB and FRTB, interest rate risk in the banking book and full review of the trading book, trading platform, banking. We all know how this goes. And the amazing part is, and then somebody says, and now let's reconcile those two. I saw banks getting in a hissy fit. I saw one, one bank had 1 billion up and down between both books, a billion simply because there are different systems behind different ETL processes, how to deal with data. So what did they do? They said, screw it, we throw it all in one bucket. So they tried to integrate into a big Hadoop system. So at that time, by the way, this is one of my claims to fame, big insights, the biggest disaster, what I would call in my career at IBM. Uh, big insights was the first attempt to do some Hadoop intelligence stuff. And um, by the way, the general manager was Arvind Krishna at that time. So just mentioning it on the data division. So, <clears throat> so, but no name dropping here, but when you take a look, they bring the data together. So now what do they fail on? Structure and Hadoop system is single indexed. You can't have multiple index. You need to match suddenly. You wanna have traits matched to banking book positions, but without indexing, what are you doing? You do some weird things with uh, Spark, Hive 3, so there's tons of technology. What do you forgot right now? Oh, by the way, there's some governance rules. You're throwing right now data from 20 different uh, banking uh, institutions together where you have counterparties. Try to build out of that one intellectual platform to identify your banking book positions and try to reconcile those. Congratulations. But they are so desperate to get the upper part done. The lower part is... Somebody told me, Boris, you need to understand, this is like politics. Nobody wants to see how the sausage is made. And this is how people treated data. And over the last 12, 18 months, it's changed. People start to realize more, we, we are actually custodian. The word data stewardship is becoming more and more important. And the concepts, it's as we talked about the security and the privacy angles, people realize if they have a good handle on those, they remove these problems what I just mentioned. A very large bank in UK had, we had the discussion, they had before one of these Hadoop monsters floating and wobbling around the company. And when we started bringing it down to a more structured approach again, but have the flexibility of documents, suddenly a lot of errors were suddenly visible. There was a trading risk engine uh, from a certain vendor, I don't want to mention which one, but and then there was a banking book calculation and then there was liquidity engine. And suddenly they were able by having cleaner data, less copies, these standardized thinking like, oh, let's ETL that. Oh yeah, that interface, no, let's ETL this. We, we built a shadow. And that concept actually leads to error. So what you come back to is we need to come to a single model. As soon as you have single models and real single source of truth, you, which is not the, single source of truth, and by the way, there are 50 copies which are completely different, divergent. Then you start to think about how do I deal with my data? How do I deal with governance? Who has access? Who has change management? Where's four, six I principles? And this is what we're seeing happening right now with a lot of banks. They ask me, how do I implement data lineage smart? Mm -hmm. And there are data lineage tools out there. 
I mean, all the big vendors from IBM Data Stage to Informatica to whatever, Abinicio, they all have that. The problem is they're all based upon one single fact. I built a copy from A to B and I track in between. Not I have one copy and I want to control that copy. And that is basically what happens right now with, with the governance. And this is quite interesting. The second layer, obviously, what we both have seen is historically apps were integrated bot top down. Now data gets served bottom up. We talk about data domains. As soon as you have a domain, you have a domain owner. As soon as you have a domain owner, you have domain interfaces, you have more control and suddenly things become more bubbling up in we have actually a problem. People don't like to talk about it, but it's good to talk about it. It's like cleaning out the house. At the beginning, yeah, you have spider webs, but after they're gone, the thing looks actually quite shiny. Better than just painting over. It yeah. just becomes gray. I also think actually if we if we look historically back on on most banks and actually most organizations as we started to get more and more digital from manual processes, I also think that data traditionally was seen as a byproduct of doing a transaction. The transaction was the important part and the data just became a byproduct and they didn't quite know to, what to do with it. But as the, the volume of data has grown and technology has enabled us to draw more insights and analytics on that data, uh, banks and other organizations are starting to realize the value of the, the, the mass of data they've got. But because historically it was a byproduct, it wasn't managed in a good way. It wasn't governed in a proper way, which means the ability to now find, as we very often talk about, you know, the needle in the haystack, it requires them to revisit that whole history of, of governance and data management and control. Quite like you said, you know, there's been lots of different approaches thrown into a data lake or what we now call data swamps to be able to, to gain that insight. There is, there is a need almost to sort of step back, start again, which most banks can't do. What, what would be your advice to, to more uh, newer or younger organizations, fintechs, et cetera, that are starting off on this journey to ensure that they don't end up into that same problem? Start with data stewardship from the beginning and think about your data modeling needs in really what you really want to achieve. So... It's amazing to see, I'm dealing with a bank in Spain, 350 million plus financial transaction per business day, 2 billion ledger entries. Mm. Says who has access to the ledger entries? Well, everybody can look up the ledger because every department, finance, controlling, everybody says, do you guys realize what exposure you have here? So, and I went to this whole picture and, and showed them how I can restructure out of one ledger account, complete actions of clients down to client names. And they were shocked. Mm. And this was... That was one of the things. And we start talking about what are domains actually, what are the domain needs? So whenever I dealing, so there's a great FinTech in, in, in Italy, I would like to mention, Illimity. Illimity started really bottom up and they started, they're the first bank I've seen start with domain syncing first, building what are the data domains we need to provide? How do we provide these domains to which audience and how can we derive value add out of these domains for the consumer? This the subject of what is a true desire, right? And out of that one, they have a complete different view on onto how data are structured and they're full regulatory compliant. They're a regular bank, but they have a complete different underbelly and it's a temporary transition path when your large institutions don't have that capability start, let's take a step back, we start from scratch. So the question is how do you start introducing concepts like ODSs? but not as a self-purpose, but as a transitional step. I always tell people, you have your legacy and you have the new. 
Think about the right way of scaffolding. Think about the scaffolding you need to achieve to get out of the swamp and the path to the data lake, lake house, lighthouse, whatever. There's so many terms right now. The ultimate enterprise to the warehouse of all warehouses, that, that is not the target. The target is how do I serve the constituents in a different way and take control back on the data? Yeah. And, and that control is honestly the interesting part right now in my life every day. Because as soon as you start building domains and data domains, it's, it becomes a complete different own, own world. You're not talking anymore about the client, which is a business party to 12 accounts. A client becomes an entity which has certain attributes attached to them. And you can build out of that one a much more holistic view, includes geospatial information and so on. The biggest change I see right now, honestly, driving is mobile apps. With all the branches going away, and guys, I, I don't want to be negative, but branches will go away. The classical branch, the only thing which will exist is uh, ATMs. And then people for more consultative approaches, you go once a year, have a discussion, maybe retirement funds, stuff like that. But the classical branch where you go in to file your checks, it's gone. And that means I need to have a completely different business relationship with my clients through mobile devices, through chatbots, and it's all data-driven. If I don't have smart data and restructure that, I'm lost as a bank. You're Super interesting Yep, go ahead, Paul. Yeah, I was, I was, it leads me to, to a, a separate or aligned question with that, you know, talking about this transition from, from the old to the new and the journey that most banks are going on. And if we look at the, the sort of current digital disruption in banking and the banking industry and, and that acceleration, the drive towards modernization and digitization, many banks are engaging in you know, needing to do fundamental transformations and replacements of their core system, something which is uh, very personal to me in, in the work that I do uh, on a daily basis. Uh, and a, a critical risk factor is associated with that data, right? You, you, we talked about that already. We know that there is critical issues in data migrations as you're moving from that old uh, to, to the new way of looking at things. And most projects, if we look at them, you know, do fail due to this failure or inability to actually migrate the data and deal with that data. Do you think we'll ever see a shift in this trend? Do you think that there's going to be a time when migrating from traditional to modern and the, the need to migrate that data is going to become a, a less risky process? I would say we are there. So over the last 12 months, we have so many different processes implemented with so many banks and every bank is different. Any financial provider is different. If anybody tells me, oh, you can replicate, we have a standard template, I guess start coughing, right? But uh, there are certain standards by now, how you can do scaffolding. It's uh, And there are certain standards building out how you do the MQ interface to a core banking system on the mainframe, how to get the data out. It's not anymore. Well, we do an export at end of day and then we do a re-import somewhere else. Oh, by the way, the formats don't match or we lose half of the data. Congratulations. The end. So there's more things coming. I'm not a big fan to say Kafka solves everything. That is right now the latest thing. Everybody says Kafka. We do an event stream. We connect the mainframe to Kafka, Oracle to Kafka. Everything goes Kafka. It's scaffolding. You need to think smart how you build match data. And they are specialty companies. One of them is a company called Exafluence, just name dropping. I dealt with those guys lately in, in several accounts because they are doing exactly only this. This is their speciality. They are suddenly doing nothing else. It's like 
you're bringing in somebody not for building the house, but they are the electricians for the high powered part in the basement, nothing else. So that's what these guys are doing. They, they have the discovery processes, they have tool chains on that. They come with their little Swiss army knives and putting the stuff and then building scaffolding. And they say right from the beginning, this is scaffolding. How much time do you need? House table should we build? 12 months, six months, two years. But long-term, this thing has to go and this is your new. But until then, this thing works and we have a proven process, but don't change anything on the left until you're done on the right. And, and those kind of systems, these guys, companies, I see drive a huge value. Interesting enough, these are not the all-encompassing, we do the digital transformation things. These are the unglamorous electrician and plumber jobs. But they come more standardized because people start to get experience in this, and this makes a lot of fun as well. But it's not easy. It's not something where any data vendor comes in and tells you, oh, yeah, it's no problem. We migrate everything. We migrate your Oracle to DB2. We migrate DB2 to SQL. SQL server, oh, yeah, the SQL server talks to data factory, to data lake, to uh, BI, Power BI. And when I see these slides, I say, damn, I saw the same slide from Microsoft last week and the week before. And it's always the same slide. It always says, no problem. Why are the clients still talking to me? Well, maybe that slide is not so perfect. I'm more honest. I think I've seen things like that fail and I'm looking after why are we failing and how do we do it better instead of trying to do the same thing again and again in standardized fashion. Nothing is the same, every single case. And this is why they fail. Every case is different. Yeah, super interesting stuff. I think one of the leaders uh, in the Nordic banking scene said that uh, it's it's like dealing with a, with a spaghetti monster each time. So uh, I think uh, it's very, very well uh, kind of a Interesting. Analogy. My best slide is called spaghetti architecture. And I showed <laughs> it to an Italian company saying, oh, you customized it extra for us. And I said, no, I always call it spaghetti. Yeah. You so. need to go to lasagna at least uh, to make it a little bit better. But uh, uh, time really flies, so we need to start rounding it up here. Uh, Boris, fantastic stuff, good insights today. But uh, what's next for you uh, at MongoDB? Anything specific we should be looking forward to? Yeah, I mean, we are by now 1,500 engineers. When I mention this one, people look at me like you're 1,500. No, no, you're 1,500. No, 1,500 engineers in the company. So things accelerate. We're going to monthly release cycles. We are already doing quarterly releases. We go to monthly. When you come like me out of an environment where mainframe clients were updating three to four years after the release to the next one, and they say, hey, we are warming the system up for 12 months. And now you tell people we are updating the data infrastructure every four weeks. They are amazing things what happening in regards of version APIs, API stability, interconnect stability, in a complete different level than I was used in my earlier lives before. And that is honestly really exciting. And we see more and more functions becoming uh, what we call now an application data platform. ADP sounds a bit marketing-like, I'm sorry. But the idea is really this, how do we generate data domains into single source and make it available from everything from a payment, you mentioned the transaction over the analytics inside in real time, Scoring. We haven't talked today about machine learning, by the way. So that's probably subject for another whole session, but real-time yeah. scoring, real-time machine learning into the existence and then into the analytics afterwards, where you utilize these payments, build analytical functions in real-time analytics, next best offer, feed that back to the customer domains, how things interact. This is what's really getting exciting now. 
And I have to admit, my biggest wow moment was something called MongoDB Realm Sync. A partner of us, Zook Engineering, you can look these guys up, very fascinating Swiss company. They built a mobile banking app for a large, large bank in two weeks. So when if somebody would have ever told me you can build mobile banking in two weeks, I would say, yeah, no, no, don't, don't even go there. But including integration, because the bank had the ODS layer integration, had the APIs done, and by utilizing these APIs and the Mongo functionality in this part, and that's not marketing, everybody can read up on the stuff, make your own opinion, but this allowed them to fast connect data into real time, always on function on the cell phone. So when you connect and you do your face ID, you have immediately all data on, fully encrypted, personalized, keyed, and so on. But the data are there. They don't start talking to the backend, which means you can accept payments. Think about the moment everybody knows in New York taxi drivers see your background picture, Paul, when you swipe and ah, no connection, you have cash, right? And those moments are gone. You don't need the connection anymore. And and those kind of integrations, that is what makes the thing exciting. And that's where, where, for me personally, the banking space is moving. So I would like to start a challenge with someone. We should do really challenge who's writing the best banking app in two weeks. Mm. That would be basically, for me, fun exercise to work with. Yeah. Maybe we need to do a uh, fintech daydreaming hackathon based on that challenge uh, sometime in the near future. Really, if you're interested, I'm happy to sponsor that. So Perfect. Don't, don't offer wrong things. Let's, let's, uh, let's continue talking about that. And indeed, we could be talking here forever. So much interesting stuff. as well. So much experience in this area. I feel like uh, we just scratched the surface really on a lot of these topics. We need to do a deeper dive perhaps uh, later on, but we do need to round it up uh, for, for this episode. So thanks, Boris, again for coming on. Uh, Paul and I would like to give you a chance to let the listeners know, though, uh, how can they get in touch uh, with you? Very simple, boris.bielek at mongodb.com, first name, dot last name, mongodb.com, very, very easy. And you can see me as well, obviously on LinkedIn as well, same name. Uh, my name is everywhere the same, so I'm completely standardized. <laughs> um, I'm not doing any funky things like Cloud Boris or something, nothing like that. It's Boris Bielek, straight up, six letters, and it's Bielek, not B-O-Lek, or not B-Lek, Balek, Bolek, Bomek. No, it's Bielek, very simple. Okay. Very good and fantastic. And thank you again for coming on to the show and sharing some great experiences and insights uh, with us here today. It was well, absolutely pleasure this morning. Thank you, guys. Thanks, Boris. And most importantly, thank you to our dear listeners, uh, both old and new, uh, for hanging out with us today. And as usual, uh, I'm going to ask, ask you to be in touch. Send all feedbacks, feedback, comments, jokes, guest requests, memes, or just send us a hi over email at hello at fintechdaydreaming.com or ping us on any of the socials, LinkedIn, Twitter, YouTube, or the anchor.fm page. And please be in touch. We also particularly appreciate uh, if you can hit the subscribe button uh, on your podcast platform of choice or indeed even on YouTube. If you like what you heard from us, why don't you drop us a review on your podcast player to help us uh, help other fintech nerds like us <laughs> to find our podcast. Uh, the reviews really help. So a huge thank you to all of you who have already uh, perhaps written one. Paul and I will be back in two weeks time with a new guest. So see you all again then. This has been Fintech Daydreaming.